This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Thursday, the 25th of January. Here's what we've got today. First of all, talking about the traffic because Habib Al-Mullah, one of Dubai's top lawyers, has put the cat among the pigeons by calling for salic charges to double in a bid to ease congestion. We've got details of that and your reaction to it. What else can I tell you? Talking inflation with the chief economist of Emirates MBD, Katija Hack. New numbers out suggest that while prices are still rising, they're not rising quite as fast here in Dubai. Katija's take on that, plus Canadian interest rates overnight, European Central Bank interest rates today. Katija is all over it. Then real estate deep dive with Clementine Monroe of Espas Real Estate in particular. With all these new off-plan developments, they seem to come with increasingly lavish amenities, a basketball court, a cigar lounge, a zen garden, which is fine, but somebody's got to pay for it. What does it mean for the economics of real estate? Brandy's been talking in depth with Clementine. And finally, earnings season both here and in the United States, Tesla earnings out overnight. They were good, but not good enough for investors. Tesla shares falling 5% in after-hours trading. we got the thoughts of the market analyst Jessica Amir of Moomoo. She is justified and she is ancient. Before that, though, let's jump straight into our top stories. And one lawyer wants to ease the heavy traffic by doubling the price of Salik. He is Habib al-Mullah. If you're new to Dubai, Habib al-Mullah is a, one of the most high-profile lawyers in town, arguably the most high-profile lawyer in town. He was actually, for a while, the head of the Dubai Financial Services Authority, so he's had time in government. His law firm... Habib al-Mullah, the eponymous uh, law firm, one of the biggest in town. For a long time, they had a tie-up with Baker McKenzie, the big US law firm. Uh, that ended a while ago, uh, for reasons we're not going to go into this morning. <laughs> but the point is, he's a big deal. When he speaks, people listen. And he said, he's looking at what salic has been doing as a listed company. They're going to introduce dynamic pricing. They're going to introduce more toll gates. He wants them to go further Double Salik, says Habib Al-Mullah, particularly at busy times and particularly in busy areas. And he singles out what he calls the central business district, which I guess is that kind of strip going from the trade centre through DIFC, the downtown area and Business Bay. What do we think? Do we want to double the price of Salik? Well, this has always been your call rather than... Mine. If we were to, and none of us, I would say, are political extremists here on the business breakfast. Um, but if we were to give out jackets, yours would be pinstriped and mine would be yellow. Fair point, well made. So, so you're. I'll a, have a crushed velvet one for me. <laughs> we were just having a joke in the newsroom, actually. Nadia Swans uh, back after a small hiatus. She was saying how well and young Tom looked. Uh, we suspect there's a portrait in an attic somewhere that is. Slowly deteriorating. It's a bit like Mick Jaggett. (laughs) But um, in a velvet smoking jacket, probably. Uh, If you provide it, you have to have proper, decent, affordable alternatives in place. That's the caveat, isn't it? Constantly. Uh, It's your caveat. Uh, (laughs) You're just like, let everyone walk. Well... You can't, I don't, they have to happen in parallel rather than wait for a metro with 138 stations before you can increase the price of Salic. 
the the carrot and the stick have to work in tandem i would i would argue but it's it's a nuanced difference yes i agree that better public transport is is obviously a good thing uh, but habib al wants to see it happen he thinks that that is one way to reduce congestion look i'd go full singapore and charge a hundred thousand us dollars for just a license to buy a car never mind for the car itself uh, if i got my way it's probably a little bit extreme we had this conversation i'm getting deja vu we had this conversation about two weeks ago because i was actually discussing it with the big big boss um, about Tom's fabulous one-liner, at which point he could quite pra- frankly have picked up a gilet and gone home. It was that good. Pointing out when we looked at how to reduce congestion, if we went down the Athens model, and what are the other cities that do it, Tom, that have the odd and even number plates? Oh, Delhi does it. Delhi does it. Um, uh, there's been a few that have trialled it, and it's not worked. Uh, but it's usually to try and combat smog and congestion yeah. uh, smog and um uh, climate concerns and things like that yeah tom suggested that as as his um way to beat congestion and then interrupted himself halfway through and said well it wouldn't work because we just buy the other license plate <laughs> which is which funny also true Paris. I was there in Paris this weekend and there are signs up about their plans to triple parking charges for SUVs So it's not just about the number of cars on the road, it's also the type of cars on the road. They are bigger, they burn more gas, they take up more space. It's not universally popular, as you can imagine. Oh, there was a thing the other day about parking and SUVs in Europe because the average parking space in Europe, I think, I want to say 140 centimetres, and I don't don't have a great sense of scale for these things, But what car parks have originally been built on, here you go, Um, SUVs are getting a centimetre wider every two years. So are we. That's fine. Um, But autobesity, they call it, by the way. How's that that for a a term? Um, It's, you know, and and France is, uh, Paris is looking at, you know, charging um, more for SUVs to park, etc. There's going to be a vote in February. So the problem is, sorry, it's not 140 centimetres, 180 centimetres. Um, that what parking spaces were built on, cars are now getting too fat for them because they're growing every year, which causes problems from, you know, you're opening your door to get out, you're now in the street, cyclists and, and all the rest of it. And it just made me think about our car parking spaces. It made me think of a brilliant campaign that Minnie once ran down in the Madnet, in the underground parking, where the parks are, shall we say, for the skilled to get in and out of. Um, as someone who's always driven a little car, hasn't been an issue. Uh, but they, years ago, had big advertising banners up saying, don't you wish you were driving a Mini? And I thought, how clever is that? That is smart. Something's got to be done about it. Um, and so I, I don't mind... I, I like solutions coming forward. We had... Um, uh, which school advisor come on, didn't we, recently? James Mullen was with us. He came up with a solution, uh, a suggestion or a solution. So make, it, make it what you will. Um, so I quite, I'd quite like this Habiba Mullah um, suggestion as well. I think the problem is alternatives at the moment. I mean, there are definitely more cars on the road. Population growth, uh, believe the figures or, or, or believe the rumours, whatever. Obviously, we've seen population growth. That means more cars on the road. There's more taxis on the road. We had those RTA... Uh, numbers coming out yesterday, they have seen a 25% increase in uh, professional transport permits, basically taxi driver permits last year. That equates to 67,000 
Uh, now, obviously, a lot of that is going to be replacing existings, etc. But again, it just adds to more, more and more people on the roads. But you've got to do something about reducing the amount of traffic on the roads because it's now getting to the point, pinch point where people are losing business. They're missing meetings. They're not bothering to go to work. They're trying to do more from home, etc. They're not scheduling meetings accordingly because they know that they're not going to get from one side of town to t'other. Um, it's, it, it's having that impact. I'm doing an event this evening up on the Palm. Um, I don't finish until 2.30 this afternoon here. I'm not going home. I'm not going. I'm not going all the way back home because I know for a fact that I'm going to spend an extra two hours trying to get back here later on. So you're making those sort of decisions. So, yeah, I don't. But to your Singapore point, let's go full Singapore, etc. Make it hundred thousand. Then again, that's all good and well if you've got the alternative routes. But I think without the extra, and I know that the RTA have announced this new route on the. Uh, on the metro, but without extra services, without extra ability to carry more people on the metro, and that seems to be the only the only other alternative at the moment, doesn't it? John's written in making a similar point. He says, if you double Salic, you'll double profits, but there'll be a negligible drop in traffic. No real alternative. People need to get to work. John, thanks very much indeed for that. How much if you if I work in Sharjah and I sorry if I live in Sharjah and I work in Jebel Ali, how much do I pay on Salic every day? It's a good question. I'm sure someone listening is doing that maths at the moment. It must be significant because it's not capped, is it? Used to be a threshold of 12, but I think they changed that, didn't they? I think they did. If you well, went through it three times, you've paid 12 dirhams and that's your lot for the day. I think that's probably gone up, especially the IPO. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll fact check that one for you, but um, it's certainly a live issue. Anyway, those are the thoughts of uh, Habib al Mollah. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Katija Hack is Chief Economist at Emirates MBD, live in the studio this morning. Hello, Katija, good to see you. Good to be here. Can we talk about a report that you guys put out over the past 24 hours or so with the headline, Dubai CPI was unchanged at 3.3% year on year for December. Brandy picked up on this one yesterday. 3.3% is, it's above most central bank targets, but it's down sharply from almost 5% in 2022. How would you summarise what's happening? So we've seen a significant slowdown broad-based across most of the categories in the CPI. Now, the only uh, sector where we've actually seen falling prices has been transport, and that's reflecting much lower fuel costs this year relative to last year. Remember, last year we had oil prices over $100 a barrel, uh, or rather 2022 at one stage. That obviously came off quite sharply in 2023. But when we look at things like food prices, the cost of uh, hotels and restaurants, entertainments and other services, we've seen inflation slow. Where we haven't seen inflation slow, and I think everybody will recognize this, has been housing costs and the cost of household durables, which are things like furniture, appliances, but also includes the cost of domestic workers. Um, So we did see inflation accelerate in those categories in 2023 and also education. So on the education side, we had uh, inflation of 2% last year uh, and not very much in 2022. It was very... uh, there was no uh, increase in 22. So um, we, we have seen some areas rise, but by and large, uh, we've seen disinflation in 2023. 3.3% isn't bad when parts of the world have had double-digit inflation over the past couple of years. What's your outlook for Dubai inflation in 2024? So I think one of the reasons why inflation, not just in the UAE, but the rest of the GCC, hasn't been as high as what we've seen
seen in some of the developed economies is because we have a very flexible labor market. So we've not suffered with the labor shortages and the uh, corresponding increase in wages that we've uh, seen driving inflation in North America and Europe, for example. Um, so I think that's one positive. In terms of the outlook for 24, we do think inflation will continue to slow. Um, so, you know, we, we don't expect a significant ramping up in energy prices, for example. Um, we think the, you know, growth in um, demand will probably moderate. Uh, higher interest rates are weighing on investment, they are weighing on consumption. So I think that should help to bring inflation lower. But we do think that housing costs will continue to rise. Now, we've seen a big increase in the market cost of uh, housing in Dubai, but that hasn't fully fed through to the official CPI, and that will take some time. Um, so we do think the housing component of the index will uh, remain elevated and, and potentially rise a little bit further before it starts to ease. Okay, that's the situation here in Dubai. Let's look more broadly. Let's look more globally, because, of course, that has a massive impact on us through interest rates. What the world's central banks do matters. Last night, we had the Bank of Canada. It was their turn to set rates. They kept them on hold. They've been on hold since July. Have a listen to Tiff McClam now. He's the governor of the Bank of Canada. He said, and you can hear him now, rates are on hold and they're probably not going any higher. We've seen some progress, but that progress has been uneven. And as I said, we're concerned about the persistence and underlying inflation. And what that means is that it's premature to discuss reducing our policy rate. You know, our deliberations are shifting from whether we've done enough to how long uh, we hold. Uh, but there was a clear consensus. It's premature to be discussing cutting our policy rate. We need to see more progress before we have that discussion. So no cut last night from the Bank of Canada. Today, we've got the European Central Bank. They decide on interest rates at lunchtime today. Most people expecting no change from the European Central Bank today. But later on in the year, different story. This is Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, speaking a couple of weeks ago in Davos about the outlook for inflation and therefore interest rates. I'm confident that short of another major shock, we have reached, reached a peak. Okay. I know some people argue that maybe we are overshooting, maybe we're taking risks. I think the risk would be worse if we went too fast and had to come back to more tightening. Katija, how do you interpret all of this central bank speak? So central bankers um, have been quite cautious about uh, the speed with which they potentially will ease monetary policy. So the story is we think inflation has peaked and that's consistent in the US, Europe and the UK, uh, most major economies. But we're not really sure whether we've got it beaten completely. And I think one of the, the issues, particularly for, for the US, is that the economy is still so strong. Unemployment is very low. And so the Fed doesn't want to start easing monetary policy and find that inflation resurges again um, later in the year. So they would rather be cautious, be very confident that inflation has been beaten and is sustainably declining before they start to ease rates. And I think that's consistent with what Christine Lagarde was saying and also uh, what the governor of the Bank of Canada was saying. Uh, they don't think they need to go higher, but they're also not going to rush to cut. Now, in terms of what the, the market is um, expecting, the market is much more aggressive in pricing rate cuts than the policymakers have indicated uh, and that most analysts expect. So, you know, for the ECB, for example, the market's pricing five rate cuts before, before the end of the year, 25 basis points each. Um, we're expecting three 
uh, at you know from it from June onwards. Um, and it's a similar story for for the US and the UK. So uh, markets seem to be very confident that inflation will continue to fall quickly. Uh, there are still some upside risks. We've had shipping disruptions in the Red Sea, which are already starting to feed through to longer delivery times in the UK. We had that data last night. Um, and so potentially that puts some upward pressure on inflation, particularly in Europe. Um, and then, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in terms of energy prices. That may also be a source of inflation later this year. So I think it's sensible for policymakers to wait and see. A couple of minutes left. The Federal Reserve meets later on this month. At the start of the year, the markets were pricing in a March rate cut in America as almost a dead cert, more than 80% according to the futures markets. I'm looking at them this morning, only a 40% chance of a rate cut in America according to futures markets. We've got to doff our cap to you and the team at Emirates MBD because even on the 1st, 2nd, 3rd of January, you guys were saying no, no rate hike in March. I mean, we don't know yet if you've been proved right, but it seems you're, you're, the wind is with you. Well, I mean, March does seem very, very early um, because, again, you know, the U.S. economy is trucking along. We get GDP estimates for the fourth quarter later today. But in the third quarter, the economy grew almost 5%. Unemployment is below 4%. Um, it doesn't really, you know, look like a situation where we need central bank easing to support growth or reduce un- uh, unemployment. Um, so, it, you know, we think March is very early. Um, potentially, uh, we see something towards the end of the second quarter. So we've got 25 basis points in cuts priced or expected in June. Um, you know, we may see that in May, perhaps if inflation falls really quickly. Um, but services inflation is sticky and i think that's that's key we may we've had a, a fairly rapid decline uh, over the last 6 to 9 months but we may not see that rapid decline continue we may actually see inflation kind of stuck where it is uh, for for several months now 10 seconds left abdul salam says inflation is easing does that mean prices are falling or they're just rising less fast they're rising less fast thank you very much indeed katija hack chief economist emirates mbd always good to see you in the studio appreciate you coming in this morning catch up on the business headlines with the bite-sized business breakfast all right speaking of prices we're talking amenities now uh we were chatting to zan jahinki yesterday of property monitor and cavendish maxwell about what we saw in 2023 for off-plan launches there was one Every 26 hours, including at the weekend. It also was a big year for amenities. Clementine Munro is the Associate Director and Head of Apartment Sales for Espace Real Estate. She's in with us now. Clementine, good morning. Good morning. As well as a lot of off-plan launches, I feel like 2023 also raised the bar in terms of inventiveness for amenities. We actually created a not-at-all-official awards for this, the Offies, for creativity in off-plan bells and whistles. From your point of view, how new is some of the stuff we're seeing? Some of it is a catch-up of what's been happening in other key global cities. And then some of it is definitely a little bit Dubai. Uh, we had an example the other day of a client who last minute uh, pulled out of one transaction to go into another as they had heard a newer and shinier building had a basketball court. Bearing in mind, this person does not look like they've ever played basketball in their life. But I have to say, that was a first for me. So has it changed the base level? What is standard for amenities in an apartment building? Absolutely. You know, there are some familiar kind of patterns that we're now beginning to see in all launches. So that's now 24-hour private security, concierge, um, 
swimming pools, gyms. They've always been standard, but really raising the bar now into, you know, maybe 20,000 square foot of community kind of uh, enjoyment space. We've never seen that much of a development historically being used up on that before. Do buyers actually care about the slightly more random amenities? I mean, Swimming pool and security, yes. But when people start, you know, adding things like meditation gardens, how much does that actually, your basketball court loving uh, buyer aside, how much does that actually influence a decision? I think it's more about how a building can differentiate itself from its competitor. If you're an overseas buyer and you're looking, in theory, at like for like, yet one of the developments has cigar lounge, cold plunge. Yes, whilst you might not use it every single day, is it what's maybe going to sway you into that product or maybe pay a little bit more of a premium? And I think that's more, more what we're seeing. Okay, well, how much of a premium, how much do, do these kind of things add to sales prices? Do you know what? It, normally, I would say where it really affects is actually your service charge. So maybe the, the, the base price example, we've got something we've done um, as fast as an agency has sold uh, about 10 uh, two-bedroom apartments in the last week or so in the new Frank Muller building that's launched in Dubai Marina. That offers cigar lounge, private chefs, cinema, valet parking, but it's actually only 2,300 dirhams a square foot, which is relatively good value compared to some of the other things that are launching with some kind of famous developers around Dubai. Um, However, the service charge is remaining low because whilst it's a branded building, it's not technically kind of serviced amenities. They're just amenities within the building. Okay, so that is my question. So you're saying it doesn't necessarily add to the sales price, how many amenities or how fancy the amenities are. But for most buildings, it's a terrible word, but um, outside of that definition between what counts as a service and what doesn't, are we seeing service fees increase in these off-plan launches we're seeing at the moment? Yes, the, the short answer is yes. How much? So if historically we've been priced around the 17, 18 dirham per square foot mark, what we're looking at is more that 20 to 25 dirhams a square foot mark, which isn't the end of the world if you think of how much you're having, particularly if you could save on things like gym memberships or paddle memberships. Um, However, arguably, if it is just a holiday pad and you're only using it for a couple of months a year, that extra 10 dirhams per square foot across, say, a 1,000 square foot apartment can make a difference if you hold it in the long term. Are we talking just about apartments there? Yes. So then what's happening in the villa space? I mean, I know fees are generally much higher for apartments. You've got those common areas that need to be looked after. But we're seeing a lot of the villa developments get quite fancy with beaches and wave pools and all the rest of it as well. Are there service charges going up? Well, not not really, because what you actually see is more the apartments within those developments affected more than the villas. The villas tends to be a kind of fixed three to five dirhams per square foot on your plot, though. So you might have a 10,000 square foot plot, but only a 3,000 square foot home. So you're still paying that 30,000 dirhams a year, but it's just that it's on your plot rather than your home. Do buyers care? Are they totting up the service fees when they are calculating their purchase? I think if you look compared, particularly if you're a second-time buyer, so you own in the, in the global city within which you live, it's still very affordable compared to a city like London. 
maybe 5x cheaper than a city like London. So I don't think the international educated buyer is as affected. But certainly if you're a homeowner in Dubai and last year it was X price and now you don't want a cigar lounge, you don't even smoke cigars, then I suppose you would be a little bit frustrated at the, at the cost that's adding up. Is it a conversation that your agents are, are having with would-be buyers? I have to say no, because the majority is still so excited at all of these amenities that are going to be available to you. What does it then mean down the track? Because these things need to be paid for and and upheld. um, And that is on the developer, but also the owners association. And that's where it's helpful to have quite a shrewd you know, hopefully quite a shrewd owners association of people who live and really care about the amenities. But yes, if you've suddenly got 20,000 square foot of amenities that need to be maintained over the years, that can not necessarily be an issue at first, but say 10, 15, 20 years down the line. What does that mean? How much say do owners associations actually have in these buildings at the moment? They wouldn't have the autonomy to change the use of something. However, they do have quite a lot of sway in terms of how the money is allocated, how the service fees you know, collected from the residents are used within the development. And how much sway or how much uh, recourse do buyers have if in 2027 their apartment building is, is handed over and there is no Zen meditation garden? Then they would have a lot of say, absolutely, because it should be annotated in the SPA uh, and then... RERA and, and, and the Dubai Land Department and the governing bodies that are here to protect the purchaser when they do purchase, really, yes, they would have a lot of say, perhaps not having to pay that final stage payment or there being a renegotiation, but everything should be thoroughly outlined in their SPA. What does this mean for rents down the road when these projects start being handed over? If buyers are going to be paying more for their service fees, does that then automatically translate into higher rents? To be honest, it does. Because if I'm an investor and I'm renting it out, I'm always just looking at my net yield. So I'm taking that rental amount, I'm taking the service fees off it, I'm working out my yield. And ultimately, you know, if I'm ROI driven, I'm going to want to keep that in line with the ROI that I, you know, that I expect from the asset that I purchased. And that ultimately is going to fall onto the renter. If the heat starts to come out of this market, both rental uh, in terms of yields, we've got about 20 seconds left, um, and in prices, do you expect to start seeing launches with less bells and whistles? I don't, because then I think it is still about how do you differentiate yourself when all the supply is online? How do you make sure that your product sells? Clementine Munro is Associate Director and Head of Apartment Sales for Espace Real Estate, speaking to us about the knock-on costs and effects that come with the extra amenities we are seeing with our off-plan launches. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. More on these top business stories now breaking out of Silicon Valley. Tesla shares falling 5% after hours. Let's bring in Jessica Amin now from Moomoo, who's been crunching the numbers. Morning, Jessica. Good morning. So Tesla down 5% overnight. Profit was good. Car sales were good, uh, but not as good as the market was expecting. Yeah, all in all, it actually was a disappointing result. And I think that is also reflective of not only their shares after hours, as you said, Richard, but also big picture. Let's look at their shares. They're down uh, in a bear market. They're down 21% from their December highs. 16% of that, uh, Richard, is from this month. But last night results uh, highlight something a bit broader and underscores that EV competition is heating up, uh, not just in the US, uh, but of course, so in China. Um, so if we think about their results, um, they were, uh, I guess, big picture, their earnings was notably lower. 
and they also see growth notably low ahead. Um, so Q4 earnings, that fell short in terms of the actual dollars and cents. They also walked away from their guidance. So that was something that caught myself, other analysts, and analysts on Wall Street off guard. Um, and I think this is uh, underscoring this EV hiccup here, that uh, competition is actually affecting Tesla. Um, it also is a little bit odd, Richard. They did not give guidance at all. They previously, remember, they pegged annual annual growth rate um, at an annual annual growth rate of 50%. And now consensus is expecting um, Tesla to actually sell 2.2 million uh, vehicles this year. So despite Tesla walking away from their guidance, the market is expecting growth to the tune of about 20%. Again, that's far short of Tesla's estimates. So that is something to consider. Um, on the positive side, lithium prices, so Richard, they're down. The lithium price is down 80%. So this is a positive sign. So why am I talking about this? So if you are invested in Tesla, you might not be expecting their shares to stay at these levels for for a little while. Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll probably, potentially, depending on your time horizon of investing, uh, you might potentially be expecting them to pick up later on in the year. And the reason for that is, is because their automotive gross margin is actually beating expectations. And if they can continue to do that, uh, then their share price can recover. Uh, another thing is to also consider that their share price could potentially also recover because they're down 20%. And this is typically when we see uh, the big end of town throw some money into stock, uh, given that it's uh, well and truly into what we call the correction. So don't be expecting Tesla to stay at these levels uh, for all. So it could be a buying opportunity. I, I know the point yeah. is here in the Middle East, and I'm sure in Australia where you are as well. It's one of the darlings of trading platforms like yours, Moomoo and others. It's a stock that people love to trade. One of the things they don't love, though, is the fact that Elon Musk of Tesla is spending so much time at Twitter, this whole being distracted argument. Do you buy into that? No, I don't really think that uh, the investment world buys into that. Um, I think the investment world is more focused on margins. Uh, because we know earnings drives share price growth. Um, I wouldn't really say that um, that he's taken his hands off the wheel. Um, I'd say that this is one of very few EV companies, if not the world's biggest EV company, that is profitable. So, so make no mistake, They're, they are 100% in EVs, the first mover advantage. They still are selling more EVs across the world than any other EV maker, and they're profitable. BYD, NEO, they're not profitable. You've got the UAE's uh, rider, for example. Um, I can't remember the exact name uh, that you've got um, in the Middle East that they rolled, rolled out um, EVs there last year. So across the entire spectrum, if you're just playing in EVs, um, the only company that's making a profit is, is this one. Um, and then, of course, they're making money in other ways as well. So when we're looking at a business, we're looking at diversification of revenue stream of of revenue streams. And this is why the investment world does lean into Tesla. And there is a thinking that their shares are not going to stay at these levels for uh, for some time or for a while, rather, I will say. So that is a consideration. Um, but also do consider, though, that there is a little bit of heat coming out of the market. But think about the end goal. 2050, uh, we still are hoping, and um, I guess the EIA is still pushing for much of the world to be carbon neutral by 2050. And that means that a lot of governments around the world, a lot of countries around the world, we know 
um, are moving towards um, phasing out the sale of ICE engines. And this is boding really well for this narrative that we're going to see a lot more EV sales. Uh, the only thing is, um, you know, I, I know in uh, the UAE, I also know in the US, there's not the infrastructure there to also support uh, consumers like you and I going out there and buying and yeah. buying an EV. In China, completely different story. Infrastructure, you can look on any on any given street and you can see a charging terminal for your ev so we need a lot more things to really pick up so that's why i'm saying um if you are investing now potentially looking at this as a buying opportunity um you could potentially have an opportunity to to pick up uh, a quality stock at a good price if you, if that's what you want to do that's that's on you but um but i do think for the long term um this is a key growth theme that investors don't want to ignore and it's, um, I guess, one of two things that is going to shape the world as we know it in 10, 15 years' time. So you've got EVs and AI, the two two things that the investment world is really focused on. Jessica, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much indeed for your time this morning. I'm not sure I'd fancy driving an EV where you are from Sydney to Perth. Not sure many how many charging stations there are in the outback, but I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us this morning. The thoughts of Jessica Amir. Market strategist at Moomoo. Moo. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.